0: this program deals with serious crimes, often of a distressing nature. If you feel at any time that you need support, please get in touch with your local crisis center. For resources that will guide you with confidential support, please see the show notes for this episode on your app. This episode involves crimes that were committed against children and the elderly. It is not suitable for all listeners. Edward Philip Brinley was a former butcher who had lost his job due to his drinking habits. Since the loss of his job, he had taken up farm work for a Midwestern plot of land owned by Eugene Gifford, and the work was about as grueling as you'd expect for an early 20th century farm. On the evening of May 15th, 1927, in Catoosa, Missouri, about 30 miles southwest of St. Louis, Missouri, Ed drove his Ford pickup truck to the home of Eugene and Bertha Gifford, He was drunk upon arriving at the homestead and had been complaining that he wasn't feeling well. He sat with Jean and Bertha for a few hours before making his departure from the eastern Missouri home, only to collapse on the concrete walkway outside of the house. Henry Graham lived a quiet life on a rural farm in the locality Morse Mill, Missouri, with his wife, Bertha Alice Graham. Where the couple ran a boarding house that catered mostly to elites traveling to the much larger city of st louis missouri or chicago illinois bertha was the ninth of ten children born to william poindexter and matilda williams on july 10th 1898 the couple welcomed their daughter lila clara graham the three lived a seemingly idyllic life giving care to those that stumbled into their home until they were ready to travel again. Standing at only 5 feet 2 inches tall, Bertha was said to be one of the most beautiful women in Missouri's Jefferson County, with dark hair, tan skin, and piercing blue eyes. The three lived in peace until 1905, when rumors struck that Henry was involved with another woman, and in 1906 a handsome man by the name of Eugene Boyery Gifford moved to Morse Mill. According to the tainted legacy of Bertha Gifford, A memoir by S.K. Murphy, Bertha Gifford's great-granddaughter. Described in newspaper accounts as being a smooth-shaven man of medium stature with a ready smile, Gene Gifford made his living by leasing out farms in Jefferson and Franklin counties. He kept good cows and had several teams of mules with which he worked on land growing corn and raising hogs. Despite the town's bone-dry law that criminalized the possession of empty bottles or kegs that had contained liquor, Gene used his crops to brew his own moonshine. In 1926, brewing equipment was found on a farm that he was leasing, and he was found guilty of violating the bone-dry law, and was ordered to pay $500 in fines. Townsfolk began talking about the Graham couple, circulating that neither party was faithful. Bertha began spending time with Gene, who was 10 years her junior, caring little for what her neighbors had to say about her relationship with the newcomer. Soon thereafter, Henry fell ill with pneumonia and died. Around this time, Jean broke off his engagement with another woman, and Bertha was given Henry's life insurance money. She then used it as a dowry for her wedding with Jean in 1907, less than one year after her late husband's passing. The newlyweds, along with Lila, relocated to Katowisa, Missouri, where Bertha became well-known as an extraordinary cook, who was also an exceptionally caring woman who would don a white dress and satchel to tend to her ailing neighbors. Bertha quickly earned a reputation as a tireless good Samaritan, and held herself ready to rush to any bedside table of any sick neighbor within 20 miles. Eagerly, on multiple occasions, she would jump out of bed in the middle of the night, and either ride horse and buggy, or drive to the scene of a sick Catawisa local, often arriving before a doctor. Though she was not a trained nurse, she was rallied as a competent volunteer that doctors knew well, she understood symptoms and drugs, and could keep temperature and nourishment of patients while waiting for doctors to arrive on the scene. Considering the times, medicine wasn't practiced as thoroughly as it is today, and few complained about having a helping hand while awaiting a medical professional, especially ones such as Bertha Gifford. Upon arrival, she would often take charge of the household, ordering around the family, and impressing them in many ways with her unprecedented knowledge of the medical field. Years passed with the family living happily in their home, with Bertha raising their young daughter, taking care of the home, and tending to sick townsfolk, earning her a reputation of a well-to-do nurse, while Jean worked as a farmer to earn the family's keep. Despite all the troubles of being a bedside nurse to an entire town in the early 20th century, and a mother, Bertha's greatest struggle was keeping the family home orderly, as a rat infestation in their red side barn was causing her trouble, and forcing her to spend the family's hard-earned money to buy rat poison from local drugstores, Despite this, the trio thrived as popular and likable people throughout Catawissa. On January 24, 1912, Jean's mother Emily paid the family a visit. She planned on staying with Jean and Bertha for a while and made herself comfortable in their home. She'd listened to Bertha complain about the rats in their barn and talked with Jean about this and that. Sometime after dinner, she became ill and complained about stomach aches. Despite Bertha's reported heroic efforts that night, She died in the family home, and the attending doctor, Dr. W. H. Hemker, wrote her cause of death as organic heart trouble on her death certificate. A year later, on May 8, 1913, Jean's 12-year-old brother James came to visit. He had been diagnosed with whooping cough, and was looking towards his sister-in-law for assistance, recognizing her as the well-rounded town nurse. His condition had been worsening since his arrival at the Giffords farm, and he had collapsed in Bertha's arms, complaining of stomach cramps and had started vomiting. That same evening at 5.30 p.m., he died in the Giffords' home. Not much is known about James, and there isn't much documentation on his life and death. A year later, on March 5th of 1914, Bertha and Jean welcomed their second child, named James Gifford, after Jean's deceased brother. In 1915, Bertha heard of a sick 15-month-old baby by the name of Bernard, who was diagnosed with pneumonia and was under the care of Dr. Hemker. She rushed to the scene to help care for the young boy, telling his mother to go about her chores. That night, he started to vomit, and continued to do so until he died four days later. In 1917, James Lewis Ogle, a 66-year-old man that worked for the Giffords, received his pay for the work that he had done, and had come to find out that it was $200 short. He talked a lot about the money, and about how he was being shorted for the work that he was doing. The Giffords weren't worried about Ogle talking negatively about them, and on November 18th of that same year, he was diagnosed by Dr. Hemker with malaria. Dr. Hemker was treating James for the ailment, and he was sent to the Giffords' home to wait out his treatment, and a while after his diagnosis and treatment, he started to get better. His symptoms were subsiding slowly, but soon after his steady incline in health, he died. His cause of death was listed as complications relating to malaria or gastritis, assumed by Dr. Hemker. No autopsy was performed due to the circumstances surrounding James's health, and he was buried in Jefferson County, Missouri, with a service that was attended by the Giffords. In December of that same year, 1917, Sherman J. Pounds, the Giffords' older relative and neighbor, made a visit to their home. A drunkard, but an otherwise healthy man, he arrived late in the night, drunk and unable to make the rest of the journey home. Within hours of his arrival, he was pronounced dead. His death was never explained, but was listed as acute alcoholism. This created little news in the small town of Catawisa, as it was commonly known that Sherman was a heavy drinker, and there was no inquest or autopsy performed on his body. He was buried in Morse Mill with the Giffords in attendance. A few years later, in 1922, Bertha Gifford and Sherman's widowed wife, Eugenia, became good friends. The town of Catawesa was chittering with gossip surrounding the two's relationship, and they were frequently seen shopping around St. Louis together. The two became such good friends that Bertha had gone so far as to invite them to a holiday dinner party. This level of trust between the two had created a bond that left Eugenia completely confident in the Giffords. So confident, in fact, that on the afternoon of December 26, 1923, Eugenia left her seven-year-old daughter, Beulah, at the Giffords while she ran some errands. When Eugenia returned to collect her daughter, she found that Beulah was complaining about bad stomach aches. Bertha offered advice on what to give her and how to make her more comfortable, and the widowed mother concluded that it was best to leave her daughter in the care of the medical nurse that she had grown so close to. Assuming that she would be well taken care of, Eugenia left the Giffords without her daughter and departed for home. The next morning, Beulah was much worse off. Her stomach pains had worsened to such a degree that Dr. Hemker was summoned to appear at the Giffords' home immediately. However, the three-year-old died minutes after he arrived. After listening to a description of the child's condition, Dr. Hemker listed her official cause of death as gastritis. It was only after Beulah's death that toxicology and autopsy were brought into the question. The little girl's aunt had asked about a post-mortem examination, a request that had infuriated Bertha, who had informed her angrily that a post-mortem examination would be a costly endeavor. This price tag, mixed with the response from Bertha had convinced officials and family to not seek out an examination of the body. And on January 5th of 1923, an article from the Big Bend News read, Little Beulah Pounds passed away Wednesday morning of last week after a short illness. She was tenderly laid to rest in the new cemetery after a touching service. The death of Beulah Pounds was rumored to have reminded people of what happened to Margaret Stolfelder. However, if it did spark any memories, nobody said a word about it. The Stolfelders were neighbors to the Giffords and had lost their baby son, Bernard, during the winter of 1915. Six long years later, their two-year-old daughter, Margaret, was diagnosed by Dr. Hemker with pneumonia. As per usual, after Margaret's diagnosis, the young girl was attended by Bertha Gifford for care. Bertha said, The baby looks to me as if she's awfully sick. I don't think she will get well. At the end of Margaret's second day in Bertha's care, she began to vomit and another three days later, she was pronounced dead. Once again, Dr. Hemker was on the scene and signed a death certificate stating that Margaret's death was due to her pneumonia. One week later, school was dismissed on Monday so that everyone in Katowice could attend the funeral of seven-year-old Irene Stolfelder, who had died on the previous Saturday. Her mother told the grand jury that Irene had always been troubled with worms, which was far more common in humans then than it is now. And when she got sick in 1923, we called Dr. Hemker. He prescribed some stomach powder and she seemed to be getting along very well when Miss Gifford came by. Miss Gifford nursed her and she started to vomit. She had been sick for nine days when she died. That made for three Stulfilder children dead, two in rapid succession. Nothing was said or done to investigate the rapid death of these children as it was assumed that they were victims of a terrible country winter. However, in January of 1924, the mother of the Stolfelder children, Mary, became sick with influenza. Rumor has it that she and her remaining family weren't too keen on the idea of Bertha nursing her after her diagnosis, but they eventually relented and allowed Bertha to look after her that night. Bertha then ushered everyone out of the room, saying that she needed to administer medicine to Mary. Within minutes, the 74-year-old was complaining of stomach cramps. After losing consciousness that evening, Hours passed and she was pronounced dead the next day. On August 18th, 1925, Jean Gifford asked George Shamel to come stay at his farm to do some work around the land with him. This wasn't an unusual request as the Giffords had employed Shamel in this manner several times over the course of their lives in Katowiza. George was a widower and for that reason he had brought along his two young boys, his nine-year-old son Lloyd and his seven-year-old son Elmer. The night they arrived, Lloyd became incredibly sick, complaining of stomach aches, and had begun vomiting. He died two days after the family's arrival to the Giffords home on August 20th, 1925. One month later, on September 22nd, 1925, Elmer Shamel died in a similar fashion, complaining of stomach aches and vomiting. Ed Brinley arrived at the Giffords home on the spring evening of May 15th, 1927. He was drunk driving his old Ford pickup truck down the curved stretch of gravel road that led to the farmstead. He put the car in park and exited his vehicle. After the sputtering of his engine shut off, he was greeted by the calming silence of the Midwestern farm. Cicadas and rustling wind on a temperate night. Ed stumbled to the front door and was greeted by Jean and Bertha. He entered the home and talked to the couple while the children readied themselves for bed. After an hour or so of conversation, he made his way to the front door. Bidding the pair farewell, he exited the home and began to make his way back to his pickup truck. Ed hadn't made it off the concrete pathway outside of the home before he collapsed. Jean collected the 48-year-old, while Bertha made him a bed in the front room of the house for Ed to spend the night in. The following morning, he continued to talk about how he wasn't feeling well, despite continuing to drink some of Jean's homebrewed moonshine. Edward's mother and Dr. William H. Hemker were called to the scene, and Edward was prescribed medication to help with his ailment. Later that afternoon, Edward Brinley, with his mother at his side, died in the Giffords' home. It wasn't until after Ed's death that gossip about the Giffords' home paved way for officials to step in. His widow, Ludelphia, didn't take the news of his death without a note of suspicion and asked the chief of police personally to investigate the matter. Compounding with this was the ever-growing suspicion of Dr. Hemker. The town doctor began to notice the long-standing trend of deaths that emanated from the Giffords' residence, and upon Ed's death, consulted a colleague from the town of Pacific, Missouri. After deliberation, the doctors couldn't conclude that Ed had been intentionally poisoned, and Dr. Hemker signed off on the death certificate, once again labeling the cause of death as gastritis. After penning his signature on the certificate, Dr. Hemker did nothing to investigate his suspicions. His 24 years of working as the town's doctor would have made requests for an inquest or an autopsy very easy for him, but upon being questioned about his lack of action, he claimed he never acted on his curiosity for fear of backlash from the Giffords and the community. From the book, The Tainted Legacy of Bertha Gifford, a memoir by S.K. Murphy, Dr. Hemker said, Suppose I was wrong. I didn't want to lay myself open and it would appear as if his assumptions about the possible repercussions of demanding an investigation were correct. Ed's widow succeeded in bringing her late husband's death to the attention of prosecuting attorney Frank Jenny, and a grand jury met in secrecy to listen to testimony from several witnesses, including relatives from the Brinley, Shamel, and Pound's family. Dr. Hemker also went before the jury to voice his suspicions, but only in the secrecy of this convention. The moment that the investigation was publicized, Bertha Gifford threatened libel suits against any person or press that testified against her, or reported on any hearing that defamed her. As it was characterized in the press, the investigative team was scared off, and the inquest was dropped. Despite this, townsfolk continued to talk, and as they did, new witnesses came out of the dark. Afterwards... Pressure grew on law enforcement, and eventually a second grand jury investigation began. This time, Frank Jenny produced incriminating evidence in the case against Bertha Gifford that showed a correlation between the deaths at her place of residence and the dates accompanying her signatures in the logbooks of two different drug stores for the purchase of arsenic. It was early in the morning on August 25th of 1928, as Police Chief Andrew McDonnell of Webster Groves, Missouri, headed to make his first arrest of the day. Anxiety swept over him as he drove ever closer to his destination, the farm of Jean and Bertha Gifford. The arrest, however, went smoothly. He took his 53-year-old suspect into custody and she offered no resistance. Bertha seemed more confused than afraid or irate. Her passive reflections struck Officer Andrew McDonnell as unusual considering the circumstances under which she was being arrested. Historical accounts, however, differ when it comes to the detainment of Bertha Gifford. Some say that Officer Andrew McDonnell announced entirely that Bertha Gifford was under arrest for murder in the first degree, and others claim that he merely stated a desire to talk to her about her role in the deaths of Ed Brinley and the Chamel children. In the book, The Tainted Legacy of Bertha Gifford, a memoir by S.K. Murphy, the author recounts her own investigation of Bertha Gifford's accusations, saying, One of my mother's most vivid childhood memories is that of her grandmother's arrest. It was a hot August day in the late morning hours. She and Jim, Bertha and Jean's son, and my mother's half-uncle were sitting outside in the shade of a large tree in the front yard, in the quiet of the heavy air, They watched a car coming slowly up the road, then were surprised when it pulled into the circular driveway. A man got out and asked for Mrs. Gifford. Jim went into the house and brought his mother to the door. Words were exchanged that my mother didn't hear, though she tried to eavesdrop, and then everyone moved into the house, including my mother, who followed her grandmother, into her bedroom. She was always vain about her looks, Mama's told me many times. She didn't want to leave the house without powdering her face. Later newspaper accounts depict her as stopping to put on a hat, which she apparently did, but Mom has said that Bertha's primary concern at the moment was making sure that her cheeks were rogued and her face looked presentable. After her arrest, Bertha made a written statement to Officer Andrew McDonnell. I, Bertha Gifford, wife of E.B. Gifford, now living near Eureka, Missouri, Hereby state of my own free will, without threat or promise of immunity, that my husband and I lived in the Nicholson Place near Catawisa about August 8, 1926, when George Shamel brought his son Lloyd, eight or nine years old, and his son Elmer, about seven, to our house, where he and they made their home with us. Lloyd was sick at the time. Dr. Hemker waited on him and left some medicine for him. I put some arsenic in the medicine before I gave it to him. And Lloyd died on or about August 11th, 1926. About September 18, 1926, Elmer John Schimmel took sick. Dr. Hemker was called and left some medicine for him. And I put some arsenic in it. And Elmer John died about September 12th. About May 15, 1927, Edward Brindley, about 48 years old, drove up to our house in an old Ford. He was drunk. He came in, sat down for a little while, then got up and went out and fell down on the concrete walk. My husband went out and brought him in, and I fixed the bed for him in the front room And my husband laid him on that bed. His mother came over and insisted we call a doctor. So I called Dr. Hemker, he left some medicine for him, and I put some arsenic in the medicine. He died May 16, 1927. In all three cases, the patients were suffering from severe pains in the stomach, and I put arsenic in their medicine to quiet their pains. Officer McDonald stated in an article that he had written for Inside Detective Magazine in 1935 that Frank Jenny had approached him and asked him to bring Bertha Gifford in for questioning, hoping to gain a confession from her. Even with the evidence he had found, Frank Jenny said himself that the case against Bertha was very weak, because there was no motive for the murders. The only evidence that they had had on her at the time was her proximity to the deaths of the children, and the logbooks from the drugstore showing arsenic purchases on dates that had correlated with the deaths of those that she was accused of murdering. Bertha had an explanation for buying the arsenic, however. She made claims that she had only purchased the arsenic to take care of the rat infestation in the family barn. The case against Bertha relied heavily on the idea that she was schizophrenic. It wasn't until after a grand jury investigation of the first five deaths that 12 more were uncovered to have occurred on the Gifford farmstead. Following the three-day trial, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity and committed to Missouri State Hospital No. 4, psychiatric institution, She remained until her death in 1951. To this day, it remains questionable as to whether or not Bertha was intentionally killing the people that she had cared for. Arsenic was commonly used as a treatment to many ailments in the early 20th century. In an interview with S.K. Murphy, Bertha's great-granddaughter, and the author of The Tainted Legacy of Bertha Gifford, a memoir, we asked her if she thought that there was any validity to the claims that Bertha's intentions were pure, And she had to say the following. Please keep in mind that this is the unedited interview between myself and S.K. Murphy. Any opinions or words reflected by each person are not the express opinions of the other, and everything is to be taken with a grain of salt due to the nature of the interview. This interview is not the expression of the Murder Mementos team. This is merely chatter amongst two people who want answers to questions that we may never receive. The only portions of this interview that have been edited are those that were cut for time.
1: I I truly believe that <clears throat> there is validity in, um, and I'm not okay. Let me let me let me qualify that. There is definitely validity in that statement that she was giving it to them to quiet their pain. Can we prove that? Is it still possible that in fact, she had ill intentions? Absolutely a hundred percent, but it is equally possible that she felt it would do them good to give them the arsenic. And that was her motivation because the one thing that stands out more than anything in the trial is that no motivation was ever established, which is why they felt compelled to try to make it seem as if she was just a lunatic, Mm -hmm. that she, you know, she's just this crazy person. She's, she's out of schizophrenia. So, so that's why, because they had, they had no motive.
0: Right. Which is something that you bring up in your book is that there was there there was the little bits of evidence that they had to convict her the log book of her purchasing the arsenic for the from the drugstores, uh, but that was basically it, and I think you made it a point to say that the prosecutors were searching for anything that they could get. To uh, put her away,
1: exactly.
0: So because
1: well, you know, it becomes it becomes extremely complex when you try to take her case and sort of um, use an overlay mm-hmm. of court proceedings nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, Motive has to be established, and they did have a grand jury hearing, and people did come forward obviously and say, "Well, she took care of my, you know, my grand aunt. My grand aunt died. She took care of our our little child, Beulah, and Beulah died." Mm-hmm. But those people were not presenting any evidence. Yeah, all, all they were doing is making statements on the stand, and based on that they decided they were going to try to go forward with prosecution. Right. But that would never happen in a court of law today. So that is one of the things that complicates this case, doesn't it?
0: It, The fact that there have been, you know, so many advancements in not only medicine, but also the way that we handle criminal cases that, you know, we're not looking at it with the same eyes that they were looking at it back in the day.
1: Exactly. It's easy to speculate. And no, no halfway intelligent person in today's world would go to their drugstore and purchase arsenic in order to consume it for their own purposes. Because Bertha took it herself. Mm-hmm. So when yes, they they had they have her signature in the, in the pharmacist records, but was she purchasing that to give it to? people she was caring for or to take it herself or really was she gonna kill the rats in her barn
0: right which
1: no no one
0: knows given what you've said and I mean I I I don't expect you know a fully you know fleshed out completely knowing answer for any of these because you know you weren't there and that's perfectly fine and I have a habit of over explaining myself so I apologize um no that's all right but uh that makes me wonder, though, given the fact that all of these people were dying under her care, and there was excuse me, there was one constant, and that was that she was giving these people arsenic, why is it that she wouldn't have stopped or thought that you know maybe something she was doing was causing this to happen? Well,
1: she had a third grade education the, the standard of education the average person you meet on the street is not third grade right in in 2022 yeah the vast majority of the folks you meet are probably going to have a high school education a handful won't Mm -hmm. uh, but but if they don't they probably left while they were in high school yeah um so again we're talking about rural Missouri in the early 1900s Mm -hmm. Um, Bertha attending literally a one-room schoolhouse Um, so and I would also say what we also don't know is the number of people that she cared for who did not die
0: right because that would have never been reported they're looking to sell newspapers and, you know, a newspaper with a headline that says, you know, a uh, person X, Y, Z survives pneumonia isn't going to sell.
1: Exactly. And if you think about it, think about the time when she first became, because this had been going on, right, for, what, 20 years before 1928 when she was... So, again, very early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Um, think of all of the possible afflictions, infections, and so forth, people could have succumbed to in the early 20th century in Bertha's time before we had antivirals, antibiotics, mm-hmm. all of the things that we have now. and. Um, we assume, we automatically assume that if someone's injured or gravely ill, before they're even gravely ill, we all just trot off to the ER somewhere and mm-hmm. we receive medical attention. But that was not available to people in that town. Yeah. So then you have someone with a third grade education, allegedly under the supervision of a doctor, I have no idea what, how that doctor became a doctor. Um, and, you know, being told, okay, this person is already really, really sick, sit by their bedside, give them this medicine at these times. Right. And then left alone to do that. And, and also, left, obviously left alone to her own devices. So, if that person dies, Bertha's not going to know what the cause of. I mean, um, the vast majority of the death certificates say gastritis or some gastrointestinal issue with the person. Was that because Bertha gave them arsenic or was it because. They ate bad food because they didn't have proper refrigeration, Mm -hmm. Um, because their water wasn't clean, because it's another thing that we assume. We all have clean running water, which you wouldn't have, you would have had a well. Right. Um, There's just so many factors.